Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I am a 10-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. This podcast is about sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who made it on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Hello, and welcome to Navigating Cancer Together. I am your host, Talea Dindi. Today, our very special guest is Dr. Damian Davis. Dr. Davis is a licensed professional counselor, LPC, in the state of Texas, and he's the founder of the Davis Consulting Center, PLLC. In addition to his therapeutic practice, Dr. Davis is a clinical assistant professor of counseling at Southern Methodist University, which is located in Dallas, Texas. Also, Dr. Davis is a community ambassador for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Dr. Davis was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in October, 2020, during the height of COVID, and he completed a stem cell transplant in July, 2021. Dr. Davis is happy to be in remission, and I am happy for Dr. Davis as well. That is a huge milestone. Congratulations, Dr. Davis. Thank you for joining us, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and have this conversation with you. I'm excited to have you here, and there's so much great information to share. So why don't we kick it off with you sharing with us how you learned that you had myeloma? I learned that I had myeloma. I was diagnosed in October of 2020. Uh, about September of 2020, I was having these stomach issues, and and I have an eight-year-old, a soon-to-be eight-year-old, and a three-year-old, so I blamed it on them. They they were younger <laughs> then, but I was like, yeah, one of these one of these little gross kids got me sick, so I thought I was having uh, a stomach virus. And just so fortunately, uh, I had my yearly physical scheduled for September, September 28th. So I went there and saw my doctor, and he's like, hey, Damien, what's different? Anything anything new going on? I'm like, yeah, I got this stomach virus that won't go away. And he said, well, how long have you had it? And I said, oh, about 10 days. He's like, yep, stomach virus shouldn't last you any longer than three. So uh, if it doesn't go away in a few days, I'm going to bring you back in, and we'll do some some deeper tests. We'll do like some 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 stool samples and all that stuff. And I said, okay, cool. And so I, I leave, and then two days later, I'm getting ready for work, and at 8 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings, and it's I answer the phone, and it's him. And so I knew when I answered the phone, it was him. It was something going on. He like, hey, I don't know what's going on, but uh, you got to go to the emergency room immediately. Your kidneys are failing. And wow. I said, okay. And so what I did not know is that when you do your yearly physical, a part one of those tests they do is they test how your kidneys are doing. Mm -hmm. And he said that to get his work double checked, he sent my labs to the uh, nephrologist, which is the kidney doctor at the hospital to just get it double checked. And that's who told him, yes, this is accurate. You need to tell him to come to the hospital uh, immediately. The way they measure your kidney function is by this, this, this toxin we all have called cryatinine. And that number should not be higher than 1.3. Mine was 6.24. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so my, my, my doctor says, Hey, yeah, basically what that means your kidneys are functioning at 15%. And he's like, I've never seen a change this drastic in one year. Uh, because when I went last year, the, the, the year before to see him, everything was working, you know, fine and functioning well. And so I go to the hospital and I'm in the hospital nine days. And so first uh, they're, they're investigating it as a uh, kidney injury. Like, hey, did you do something that harmed your kidneys? And so for the first few days, they're investigating it that way. And so about day three or four, they said, hey, we're going to do a biopsy on your kidneys. And they said, but also we want you to talk to the oncologist. And I'm like, wait a minute. Mm. <laughs> what do I talk to them for? What do we need to talk about? <laughs> and so... Uh, uh, that I call young colleges, the young I'm sorry, the young colleges call me, and she says, "Hey, um, you have symptoms of something called multiple myeloma, which is a cancer." She says, "I don't know for sure, but the only way we can verify it is that when they do a biopsy of your kidneys, I'm also going to have them do a biopsy of your bone marrow." Oh. And so they did both biopsies at the same time, and then about a day later, they came back like, "Yep, this is it." you have multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of the bone marrow. And the reason your kidneys are, are, are malfunctioning or, or being damaged is that myeloma attacks the kidneys. Uh, the cancer attacks the kidneys. And meantime, that's how many of us myeloma survivors find out we have myeloma. It's first a kidney thing that they discover, oh, really, it's not the kidney thing. It's this cancer. So that's kind of how it all went down for me. Oh, wow. So you went in for an annual physical and you ended up with this news a few days later. Wow. It's like we go into these appointments and thankfully we do. And thankfully you went in for your appointment, but we just never know what the outcome is going to be. But you made a great point. It's so important to go to your annual exams and any other cancer preventative screenings that you know that you should be getting just to make sure that you know everything's okay. And if it isn't, you can take care of it right away. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great point you make because I look back on this journey with everything that's gone down from the diagnosis to the treatments, to the chemos, to the uh, stem cell transplant, probably the most important part of the journey was going to that annual physical because that's how I was discovered. And as I look back, what I'm really appreciative about my PCP is that he actually, he didn't treat it and treat me just as a routine case. He actually sat down like, hey, what's different? What's different nice. with you? What's going on with you? And that's when I brought the whole stomach virus thing. And he like, mm, that doesn't make sense to me. And a couple of days later, he figured out what it was. And of course, you know, your general PCP, they're not a specialist in these areas, but they, he knew where to turn me to. Mm -hmm. And to know that he, he got these numbers and then he sent it to the hospital to have it double checked to make sure he was looking at it right. Like he, he, he took some steps. And so I'm really appreciative of him. And just going to that annual physical uh, kind of set everything in motion. That's great, too, that you had a doctor like that who was willing to make that personal connection and just say, hey, how are you doing? What's different? That can make a world of difference because a lot of times, unfortunately, patients feel like there is no connection. Therefore, they're less likely to share information about things that have changed or concerns that they have. Again, another great example of having that patient and doctor connection and communication. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Dr. Davis, you're a husband and a father. How did your diagnosis impact your family? It's so, I mean, we, we can do a podcast just on that. <laughs> like it, like it's, 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 it's so impactful because you're sitting there and it's something that, you know, us 
us cancer thrivers say, and, and I know you're familiar with this, is that there's life before cancer and there's life after it. Like everything after you're diagnosed will be under this umbrella of cancer survivorship, right? And so I remember sitting there uh, with my wife and, and getting the diagnosis. And also let me throw in there too, uh, I was diagnosed at the high of COVID. And so you remember, we kind of shut everything down around March 2020. So I was diagnosed uh, October 2020. This is before vaccines and all that stuff. So even protocols of entering the hospital were different. You know, Mm -hmm. those things were different. So we're sitting there. And at that time, um, I think my daughters are our daughters are one and a half and six. And so they don't understand that they don't they, they don't quite understand that they know I'm not there they know I'm in the hospital but they don't quite know what that means for my wife I think she kind of went into um fix it mode as in okay what do I gotta do now how do we keep ourselves afloat and all that stuff I'm not sure that us as a family were able to understand the emotional toll of it until much later on I think it was months in and when we kind of exhaled and were like, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yes. Dr. Davis, I hear that so often from families and caregivers. Their main concern is just making sure that their loved one is being taken care of. And like your wife, they just jump into that mode and they just do whatever they got to do. For some families, unfortunately, that communication piece just isn't there. So they lose connection and they start to shut down. How did that work for you and your wife? Were you guys still able to talk about the things that needed to to get taken care of? Were you sharing how you felt in relation to all of the things that were going on? Were you able to have, I know you said the emotional piece didn't come later, but were you still able to keep that important communication going? I think we stay one of one of the great blessings we have. We stay really connected. We stay okay. very connected um, and and trying to um, figure out what this looks like. That doesn't mean everything was smooth and there were some disagreements in there as well, but we yeah. stay connected. I think we both had an individual struggle that uh, impacted things. For me, it was, wait a minute, I can't, my independence is being stolen for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. <laughs> and That's so huge. for me- I think that led to levels of sadness and depression for me. Mm-hmm. And for my wife, I think that uh, she was just extremely overwhelmed and I could see it, but she wouldn't mm-hmm. talk to me about it. She like, nope, not talking to you about it, but she has some wonderful girlfriends that she could reach out to and in and, and a, and a good community. Uh, but I think for her, it was a level of overwhelm. And for me, it was uh, feeling that independence and being able to help was taken away. And that was not enjoyable either. Mm-hmm. I can totally relate. And it's really good, though, that your wife had that community of people to rally around her because caregivers are often forgotten in all of this as well, oh, yeah. because it's a huge toll on them. Mm-hmm. And neither parties ask for this, but both parties are just trying to jump in there and do what needs to be done. And so that's important. So thank you so much for mentioning that your wife had that support also. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Davis, please tell us what kind of treatment did you have? Was it just the stem cell transplant or were there other forms of treatment? And then also, what did your decision-making process look like for the forms of treatment that you received? 
So it's interesting that my wife and I, we joke, like we say, we got like an associate's degree in cancer now. Like we understand it. We, we know all these terms and, you know, uh, what these meanings are. But in the beginning, you don't know anything. And, and, and you better not start Googling stuff because you're going to, it'll freak you out. <laughs> so you can't, you can't do that either. And so what would happen is that when we would get introduced to somebody like, okay, this is, this is the treatment. This is the plan. We trusted the doctor, but we did our own research too and mm -hmm. figuring out things. So for me, what they did, they started, which is a pretty uh, common treatment for multiple myeloma. They started me on two chemo medications. One was a pill called Revlimid that I would take in cycles. And what that means is that I would take it for 14 days and I'd be off for seven days. Then I'd start the whole process again. And then I was on a second chemo called Velcade, which was uh, a shot in the stomach twice, uh, twice a week for, uh, and I did both of those for six months. And those are my treatment plan. I can't say I was educated a lot on what my other options are. In the very beginning, I actually started chemo before I was discharged from the hospital, before even meeting the oncologist in person. I started chemo in the hospital. So I can't say I was highly educated in the beginning of what my options were, but I became more educated as things went along. And so mm -hmm. did both of those chemos for six months. Then that's what put me into remission around March of 2021. And then it's in July of 2021 when, uh, while in remission, I went through the stem cell transplant. And so those were my, uh, my, my primary treatments. Those were the primary thing, but then they also give you a steroid because the chemo makes you feel so exhausted. They have to give you nausea medication because the chemo makes you feel nauseated. Uh, they have to give you uh, vitamin things because it can strip away some of your nutrients. Then there's dietary things because your taste buds have changed and you have no appetite and you're throwing up everything. So the chemos were the main thing, but then there were all these other medications trying to fight the side effects of the chemo. Yes. And that's unfortunately how it goes. It's like you are taking these drugs to kill the cancer, but it's also doing other things to the good cells. And it, it, it just creates all these other things. The stem cell transplant, please tell us a little bit more about that for people who are not familiar what that is and how that works. And if you could just do it on a high level, that's, that, oh. that would be great. <laughs> it's crazy. I love talking about stem cell transplant because <laughs> the technology they use is kind of like out of this world to me like it's crazy it's absolutely crazy and so for those who don't know what myeloma is it's a cancer of the bone marrow and our bone marrow is our factory for making stem cells and stem cells are basically cells that have not decided what they're going to be yet so stem cells become either red blood cells white blood cells or platelets and so what myeloma does it becomes a cancerous cell in your bone marrow and it's a cell, it's basically a cancerous cell of, the, of white blood cells, which are called T cells. And so what it does is it starts to make these cancerous renegade cells in your bone marrow, and it crowds out the good cells. And so these cancerous cells start to take over, they start to enter the, enter the body, and then they start to have negative effects on things. The reason my kidneys were damaged in the beginning, because those cancerous cells release a bunch of protein that clogs the kidneys. And that's why that was going on. So what, what, what the chemo does, I mentioned the Revlimid and the Velcade, it goes in and destroys as many of the stem cell, I'm sorry, of the um, cancerous cells, of the myeloma cells as it can, right? And then at a certain level, it'll put you into remission. But like you mentioned that it also has really negative effects on the rest of the body too. 
once you're in remission, what the stem cell transplant does is that they go in and they harvest your healthy stem cells. They take them out. For me, I harvested 8 million. Um, yeah, 8 million stem cells. And my, that was purposeful by my doctor because she wanted to save some in case I needed a stem cell transplant in the future. And so they, what they do for it, they harvest your healthy stem cells uh, from your bone marrow. And then they give you a chemo drug called melphalan. Melphalan is extremely powerful. You can't take it regularly like you talk, like I took the Velcade and the Revlimid. And what melphalan does, it goes into your bone marrow and it destroys everything. The good stuff and the bad stuff. And I, you want to talk about side effects. You feel terrible after they give you melphalan, right? And what's interesting, when they gave it to me, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic. I felt the impact of the melphalan within hours. I felt the side effects. Wow. I felt it within hours after they gave it to me. So they give you that and they give you a day of rest. And then what they do, they, the, the healthy stem cells, they harvest it. They put them back in you and allow them to go to your bone marrow. And then, and then they, they grow naturally. The best, the best analogy they gave me was like, see your bone marrow as a garden. The garden, the, the flowers are your healthy cells, your white blood cells, your red blood cells, your platelets. But then the myeloma cells are like weeds. What the Revlimid, the regular chemo does, it goes in there and it destroys the weeds. What the stem cell transplant does in melphalan, it destroys everything in the garden. And then when they give you your stem cells back, it's like replanting the garden with seeds that are going to grow flowers again. Just, but that just takes time. And so that's mm -hmm. pretty much what the, um, what the stem cell transplant is. It's pretty intense. Uh, it kept me in the hospital for 18 days. Wow. 18, okay. yeah, 18 days of of the whole process and recovery. Um, and that's pretty typical. I, from what I learned from my doctor, about 15 to 25 days in a hospital after a stem cell transplant is pretty, pretty normal. Dr. Davis, how long did it take for you to start to feel somewhat better after the stem cell transplant? Oh, that's a good question. Cause you know, I just, I just mentioned that uh, I kept in the hospital for 18 days, but when you go home, you still must go visit your oncologist at least three times a week they have to check on you uh, because also as we know uh, cancer chemotherapy is an immunosystem suppressant yes. and so you're very susceptible to all kind of things and again I mentioned we're talking about we're in the height of COVID too so mm -hmm. after the stem cell transplant I had to go to the doctor about three times a week for about two months okay. so uh, to answer your question when I started back feeling halfway decent, probably about three months later. That's about really three intense. months later. Yeah, it's really intense. I, I had the stem cell transplant. It's actually funny. It's coming up on a year. I, I checked into the hospital on July 2nd because I remember being in the hospital for the 4th of July and I returned to work part-time mid-September. So that kind of gives you a gauge of how yes. long it took me. And when, even when I returned to work part-time, I wasn't anywhere near hundred percent. I was probably around 60, 60%. Wow. Um, but yeah, that's how long it, it took to just halfway feel decent to go outside, walk the neighborhood, you know, do those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for doing a great job of explaining how stem cell transplants work. And then also just walking us through all the different things that you had to go through and also putting into perspective how much time it takes a person to start to heal from those kinds of treatments. 
Because some misconceptions that people have is that after the treatment stops, you should just jump right in and be yourself again. And if you haven't gone through it, you just you just don't know how that really works. It takes time. It takes a long time. It's so interesting you say that. So I, now I go see my oncologist once a month and I actually saw uh, her yesterday. Okay. And so we, we were kind of laughing and joking about me approaching this one year anniversary of my stem cell transplant. <laughs> she told me, you're doing really well. For a lot of people, they don't start getting their energy back until about a year after. Wow. So let's just let you know how intense it is. It's wow. really, really intense. Dr. Davis, I'm glad that you're doing so well. And again, I'm just happy that you're able to be here with us today and, and talk and share your experience. And it, it really does help other people hearing stories like yours and providing hope and encouragement. So thank you again. Absolutely. I want to kind of shift gears to more of the emotional side of cancer, Dr. Davis. One question that I have for you is why do some men refuse to reach out for help and talk about what they're feeling? And what advice do you have for men that struggle with that? Oh my, how much time we got? That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so I'm, I'm laughing about that because we can talk about that in reference to cancer. Or we can talk about that just in life in general, right? Yes. And for me, I can even narrow it down to black men, right? why that's such a, such a, such a taboo thing. Yes. And I think when you think about it, 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 you cannot approach this topic without viewing it from a societal perspective. And what I mean is that we still, you know, although you, you, you can say what you want to say or have your beliefs how you want to believe it, I stand strong on my belief that we still live in a country where uh, your race impacts how you are treated. Yeah. And for many men, especially men of color and men of black and black men, they 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 feel like they're in a place where it's not safe to let their guard down. They're in a place where a routine traffic stop can mean they don't go home. They're in a place where incarceration for for one thing can ruin the rest of their lives, you know. And so you're you're in a place where you know although we're we're trying to make strides, so many. Um, so many are not, don't, don't, don't feel safe to let these things down. And so when you talk about it from a medical perspective, we all know of the Tuskegee experiments. We know about those, but that's just the ones we talk about. There are many mm -hmm. more, right? Mm -hmm. There are studies that show that African-Americans, when they go to the doctor, um, from a mental health perspective, are more likely to be diagnosed with psychotic mental illnesses. There are studies that show that African-Americans, when they go to the doctor, are less likely to receive pain medication for the same complaint of pain as a white counterpart, right? So there's still these discrepancies in the medical community. And so for many men, it's like, why go there? It's not a place that's looking out for me, right? I don't want to do that. Uh, but in the long run, it shouldn't be that way because we're just hurting ourselves. We, we, we should be in there. As, as I mentioned earlier, that annual physical is what saved my life. Mm -hmm. That annual physical was that, that big. And so when I think when you think about men, why it's tougher for them to, um, to open up about these things. For one, um, they probably feel more comfortable with a doctor that looks like them. Yes. And, and finding that can be difficult as well. And, and gaining that overall trust of the medical community, I think there's a gap there. And because of that, I think it causes a lot of men not to seek help 
for for physical ailments or medical things. And I think when you put all that together, that's what causes a lot of men to stay back and stay away. All of those are very valid points, Dr. Davis. And I want to thank you again for walking us through those, because sometimes we see all these statistics. We hear Black people, Black men just don't go to the doctor. They don't care about their health, but they're not looking at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. And you did a great job pointing out several different key, very important reasons why some Black people and Black men are hesitant to go into the doctor. And when you look back at history, there's this mindset of why would I go to someone who has a proven track record of doing these things to people that look like me? Yeah. And so I totally understand it. What is some advice that you have for Black men and Black people in general who are hesitant to go to the doctor, but, but they may need to seek professional attention and support? I, I would say it sounds very simplistic, but for one, go. Mm-hmm. Go. Your health is that important. You are that important. Go and get it checked out. Because what's so cool, what, what's so fascinating is that so many of these ailments, if caught in time, man, they can be taken care of. They True. can be taken care of if caught in time. So I would say, first off, go. The second thing I would say, but as you go, find somebody that you trust. You don't have to. So what's interesting, I'll tell this quick story. The oncologist that I was given um, or, or, or became her patient once I was diagnosed is not my oncologist now. Because what I realized is that although she did a good job, I didn't pick her. And once I connected with my doctor who did my, my oncologist who did my stem cell transplant, I'm like, wait a minute you answer my questions more thoroughly. You do these things better. And so I switched because this is my health and I have to take ownership of it. So what I would say to people uh, hesitant to go to the doctor is go and then two, find someone you trust, but then three, advocate for yourself. Of course, you always take the doctor's um, perspective because they're the expert, right? I trust them, right? I want to take mm-hmm. their perspective, but also research yourself too. Advocate for yourself. If something don't feel right, you say it. If something doesn't, doesn't seem right, you voice that opinion because at the end of the day, it's your health and all, and all of those things. And so, yeah, I would just av- advocate for yourself and, and, and know that your health is that important and you're that important to go get that stuff checked out. I totally agree, Dr. Davis. And I really like how right in the middle of your treatment, you said, hey, this this doctor, this oncologist, you know, we're not connecting as well as we should. She's not answering my questions as well. You empowered yourself and said, hey, I can go find a different person. And I think that that is so important as well. Like you don't have to stick with the person that you started with. It's okay to get a second opinion. It's okay to want someone who is taking care of your needs, your questions, not just your physical needs, but your emotional needs as well. And making sure you understand what you're going to be going through. And so I really like how you said it was just that simple. She wasn't answering my questions very thoroughly. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. And and I felt that uh, my original oncologist was very by the book, was not thinking about me. I think, of course, she did. She did a wonderful job, but she was very by the book, but was not incorporating me specifically. I think 
If I had been any myeloma patient, she would have treated it the same way. The oncologist I'm with now, I think not only understands the book knowledge, but thinks of me too. And I don't feel that she treats me just as a number. I laugh because my oncologist now, she's always late. She's always late to my appointments. <laughs> so she's with I other go, patients yeah, for so long. So, so, so when I go, I book off my calendar. I know I'm going to be there a couple hours. She's going to always be late coming in. But the reason it doesn't bother me because she takes her time with me. And I know she's doing that with all her patients. And so it doesn't bother me at all. Cause I'm like, she's taking her time. She's meeting those people where they are. And so, uh, yeah, we kind of laugh. Like she always late, but it's all good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you, you made a great point is that she sees you as well, not just the cancer. And that is so important. That's the part of the holistic care that we really need as cancer patients, as cancer survivors, just healthcare period. That makes a big difference. Thank you for sharing that again. Dr. Davis, how did you take care of your own personal mental health during your cancer journey? I think the first part, so, so, my, so my natural personality is to, you know, be independent, somewhat driven, you know, get, get after things and, and try to make stuff happen, uh, serving, all those things are really, really important to me. And so the first thing I had to do was be okay with not being okay. Like in that moment on those chemo, those chemos kicked my butt. <laughs> like they, those side <laughs> effects were tough. Like they, 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 they were evil. Uh, but it was understanding that it's okay in this moment not to be your full self. It's okay if you sleep 12 hours a day. It's okay if you can't take the trash out. It's okay right now. You can't do those things and that's okay. And then once I, so as I told you, I think I was, I was telling you earlier that the emotion kind of came in later. Mm-hmm. Once I settled with that, um, I sought some counseling myself. And what's really interesting that people don't know, but us mental health professionals, that they are, they encourage that we always have a counselor. Yes. Even if you just go check in once a quarter, just go mm-hmm. check in with someone because you, you are always um, dealing with the um, issues of other people. And you love it, but it's heavy, right? So yes. they always recommend that. And so during that time, was I got the I wasn't no, I wasn't feeling better, but just when I settled with the emotion of it, I went in and saw some some counseling myself, and it was helpful. Not that they had any answers or anything, but it was just helpful to have a safe space to uh, a safe space to voice some of those things. And then once I my body somewhat adjusted to the chemo, I would take pride in being able to do small things again. I remember going yeah. and cooking again. Yes. And I had to, I was, I was so tired. I had to have a chair by the stove and sit down and cook. I couldn't stand up yeah. and cook, mm-hmm. but I was able to cook. And so I was able to take pride in some of those very, very, very small things. That's very important. You have to take small steps and then eventually you'll get back to maybe not your full self, but just going from, you know, like you said, sleeping 12 hours to maybe sleeping eight hours a -hmm. day and just doing those things the best that you can. It doesn't have to be perfect, but the fact that you're able to do something, that's progress and that's the goal. Dr. Davis, I want to talk about something you mentioned a little bit ago. And it was for Black people being able to find like Black doctors, Black therapists. Mm -hmm. I'm in Minnesota, so it it can be sparse. For other people in areas where there may not be a lot of Black doctors or therapists, what advice do you have about finding those, those folks? You know, can you seek them out online? Where would you recommend starting? 
So that's a, that, that's a really good question. And so I'll, I'll say this, our uh, American Counseling Association, the American Psychological Association, they're working on something because right now, technically you can, uh, as a mental health professional, you can only see clients in the state where you're licensed. So let's say, so I'm here. So you're in Minnesota, I'm in Texas, I'm here in mm -hmm. Dallas. Um, and so if, 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 if someone in Minnesota wanted to see me, technically they couldn't, they, I, cause I'm not licensed in Minnesota. And so what the two big organizations, the ACA and the NAPA are working on is getting states to sign on to a bill that would allow us to cross state lines without being licensed there. So that's one big thing, but we know how government works. That may be 10 years from now. I don't know. They, so far, they got eight states to sign on. You know, we got 50 of them. So they're trying to work. <laughs> they're, 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 they're trying to work on that. What I would say, because you, you're right, in rural areas and places where you may not have a lot of folks of color, that's one good thing of telehealth is that um, don't get me wrong I'm old school in my therapeutic beliefs I still think in person is better because I can see your body language I can get your energy we can we can bounce off each other but telehealth is still effective as well and so if you live in a place where there may be more black people in Minneapolis than a smaller town in Minnesota at least I can connect with them through a telehealth perspective so there's a wonderful website there is therapy for black girls so that's a, that's, a, that's a website for finding therapists of color. There is Therapy for Black Men. That's another website that's really, really effective. And also um, websites like Psychology Today, um, Good Therapy, those places, they're not catered to a certain race, but you can go on there and see therapist pictures. You can go through, you can type in your zip code and people will pop up for you, right? So there are <laughs> tools out there. And I'll tell you this, I've been found a couple of times by clients Googling black therapists in <laughs> certain areas. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then what you do, your name will just pop up. Like, yeah, I just found you by Googling black therapists in certain area. Or I've Googled Latino therapists in this area, right? And then these <laughs> names will start popping up. And so the, the, the power of Google is, is helpful as well. So you, you're right. You can exist in some cities where you don't have a lot of folks of yeah. color but with telehealth with some of those websites i mentioned with some of those resources you still can find people to connect with thank you for sharing that dr davis there's some confusion about you know what is a therapist what is a licensed professional counselor what is the difference between the two just so our listeners know so a therapist is a umbrella term for several different types of people who provide mental health services so under the umbrella therapists, you have licensed professional counselors like myself, you have social workers, you have licensed marriage and family therapists, you have psychologists. A lot of psychologists don't like being called therapists, but for the lay person, it is what it is. Uh, so basically what that means under that umbrella is that we all provide mental health services to you. And that's what therapist means. The one that's different is psychiatrist. A psychiatrist is an actual medical doctor who can prescribe medication. Licensed professional counselors, social workers, licensed marriage and family therapists, uh, licensed chemical dependency counselors, psychologists cannot prescribe medication, but all can provide mental health services. If you're looking for medication management, you got to go to a psychiatrist, but most psychiatrists do not provide therapeutic services. They're really much there for medication management, and then they recommend you to someone like us to get the therapeutic services. So when you're talking about therapy, you're talking about that, that, that stereotypical thing you see on TV, someone I'm meeting with weekly or bi-weekly discussing issues and kind of overcoming some problems. So uh, that's what therapy means because it's kind of an umbrella term for anyone who can provide mental health services. Great. Thank you, Dr. Davis. 
You mentioned that you prefer to work with your clients in person. Mm -hmm. What are some other ways that you support the people that you work with? So it's interesting because when you wear the hat of, of a therapist, it's such a dynamic thing because you create these extremely intimate relationships with your clients. It's extremely intimate. You got to understand, they come and tell you stuff that they haven't told anyone else. So it's very intimate. But I say it's a weird relationship because you can't go to dinner with them. You can't go <laughs> hang out with them. You can't go to the barbecue. You can't do any of that stuff because it's not allowed by rule. I've, I've had several family members come to me and like, hey, we want to come to you for therapy. And I'm like, yeah, you can't. That's illegal. And for them, they don't understand. Like, I'm comfortable with you. You're the one I want to work with. I said, I completely get it. Yeah. But legally, we can't do that, right? So you have these different kind of kind of genres in it where very intimate, however, has boundaries on it. And so when you're a therapist, you, you, you're always there for your client, but there may be situations where uh, you have to go beyond the therapy, therapy room. I'm a big believer that your impact should be beyond just the therapeutic room. And so that may mean you may have a client in an emergency. This doesn't happen often, but a client may be having thoughts of hurting themselves. They may reach out to you on a weekend and you got to step in there and help them out, right? Yeah. So that's a way to help. I think another way uh, that many of us try to help is advocating for our clients. So we may not be doing anything specifically for that person, but we may be trying to get legislation changed to get, you know, more opportunities for that. And another thing that I do is that um, not only that I have a therapeutic side, but I really, really enjoy my teaching side as a professor as well, because I get a chance and opportunity to help mold and pour into the next generation of counselors who are going to go out into this world and they're going to help a lot of people too. So um, th th those are some of the ways that I hope that are being effective. And, and helping, helping folks in the therapy room and outside of it. That's great. I love the work that you do because you are a face that people can say, hey, Dr. Davis looks like me. That makes them feel more comfortable. But then as you mentioned, you're also doing the teaching piece where you are welcoming in another generation of counselors and therapists who are are much needed and just letting them see that Dr. Davis is doing this. I can too. Oh yeah. And um, just creating that space, providing that education and mentorship and support is so important because we do need more black people in the mental health space, in the health space period. And I, I just think that can make a big, big difference. Oh yeah, I completely agree. And you, and you understand this, that when you're a person of color, when you're a black person, there are certain spaces you enter and the weight you carry is a little different. Yes. And so being a therapist of color, uh, being a black therapist, the weight is a little different because the expectation is not only do I have to be a good therapist, I understand the cultural piece of this too. Right. And that means a lot. And the same thing is in the classroom. I work at a, a university that has a lower number of, of students of color growing, but a lower number of students of color. And so you have to understand when you become a, a licensed professional counselor, you're getting a master's degree. You have to have yeah. to, a master's degree to do this. So when some of my students of color walk in the classroom, they see me, they're like, oh, 
wait a minute. <laughs> I have someone that, like you said, I can see and they're doing this. And not only can they guide me as my professor and help me in my education, they can also help educate me on the connection from the cultural side as well. And so I've seen that be really effective, not only with my students of color, but with my white students as well. They yes. really, really enjoy hearing that perspective and like, oh, this is what will make me a better counselor. So I really, really enjoy that piece as well. And that's so important too, because for the people that are not Black, that want to do better, that is a powerful way to help them do better and include them in that process and say, hey, this is what we need. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. Finally, Dr. Davis, mental health and mental illness are taboo still in the Black community. It's getting better. However, there's still a lot of stigmas tied to those things. And what are some things that we can do to help move things forward? And most importantly, create a safe and welcoming space for Black people, especially Black men. Well, well first thing we can do is uh, make it less taboo. We can, we can do that by talking openly about it and removing that stigma that um, it makes you crazy. So when I was in my PhD studies, my dissertation basically looked at how do counselors understand Black clients? And I compared how do white counselors and counselors of color rate their understanding of Black clients? And so during the studies, uh, one quote that I used from a study that, it wasn't my study, it was a study I used in my study. They interviewed a Black man about mental health and his quote was I'm black I can't afford to be crazy too so mm -hmm. I'm not going to I'm not seeking any mental health services because mm -hmm. the taboo is that if I do that then uh, I'm labeled as crazy and so what's changing hopefully that that taboo is is slightly coming down and it's one thing I really admire about the generation of like the 15 to 25 year olds mm -hmm. it's not taboo for them that's right yeah. They, they are moving the needle forward and understanding that my mental health in some ways is more important than my physical health because we understand that uh, mental struggles can have a physical impact on you, can increase blood pressure, can increase stress, can increase those negative neurotransmitters in the brain that cause negative impacts on thinking and synapses and all those things and on and on and on. And so I think what we can do is start to remove the taboo. As you mentioned earlier, something else that will be helpful is that we got to get more mental health professionals who look like me, who look like Black women, who look like, like, like Latino and Latina, men and women. We got to get those things going so that we have a space that's creating more equality just through the cultural makeup of it, right? And then if you have a mental health experience, if you're okay at your level of comfort, talk about it with people. Yeah. You would be surprised how many folks I've gotten counseling just because they know me. <laughs> they trust me. Of course, they can't see me, but I'm like, I know someone who'd be great for you. And so I've gotten so many people to go to counseling. And one thing I love, and I joke about this with my clients, is when they become mental health advocates, they'll come into counseling cautious. And then three months later, they tell me about how they handing out cards to people to go to, to go to counseling. And so they kind of become advocates. And so when you get people in your life who you look up to, who you trust, who you love talking about their mental health and talking about how they sought out services, it starts to let that brick wall down. And then it does encourage people to seek this help because uh, it's much needed. 
It's just good to have a safe place. And one thing I'll add, we talking about black people specifically, you got to understand that our culture and being black in America can be tough at times, it can be tough all the time, right? And so meantime, we have mental health things just by being a black person. So everything we do is also gas is added to that fire because of your culture, right? I know we all take pride in our skin and our melanin and all that. Mm-hmm. So we take pride in that stuff, but it also has um, some things that makes things tougher as well so you may be just depressed yeah plus you plus you're black or you may be really anxious plus I'm black right so you so I think that's why it's important to create those safe spaces for us to go to uh, because our mental health is just as important as everyone else's well said well said and um, again you covered so many great points Dr. Davis Before we end today, I just want to know what's next for you. And for folks that are in Texas who may want your support, where can they find you? So I'm a little bit of everywhere. (laughs) Our website is uh, thedaviscounselingcenter.com. And so that's the primary place to reach us. And it's not just me. We've got a wonderful team of people here who can provide services. And I have full faith in all of them and they are just absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm listed on Therapy for Black Girl, Therapy for Black Men, Psychology Today, all those different places. So what's next for me is continuing to practice. I absolutely love practicing. So continuing to do that and diving more into the teaching world of of being a professor. So that's kind of really big thing on on my agenda as well. And probably the biggest thing that I don't have clarity on yet, but a lot of stuff is falling into place, like including what we're you and I are able to do today, right? Yeah. Is really, really, really uh, becoming an advocate in the camp in the cancer world in the myeloma work. And one thing I also mentioned too that multiple myeloma disproportionately affects African Americans. It really, yes. really disproportionately impacts us. And so I really want to be an advocate in that world. Uh, this, this is the second time I've had the pleasure of being on a podcast to discuss this. And so I hope this continues to go because what I want people to know is that although myeloma and any cancer, you know, is really tough, it does not have to be the final chapter of the book. It's going to change some stuff in the book. Yes. <laughs> But it does not have to mean the book is over. So what I hope that I can do is just really, really be an encouragement to others. When I was going through this, um, this whole process and I started to feel a little better, my prayer was, God, I don't know why you allowed this, but let's use it to help somebody else. And I feel like that's coming true for me. And so I just want to continue to really grow in this world and, uh, and just reach out to other folks and let them know, hey, it's tough right now, but, you know, keep grinding. It's going to be all right. I love it, Dr. Davis, and I cannot thank you enough for your time, for all the wonderful information that you've shared with us, for sharing your personal story with cancer, and um, I hope that this episode encourages people, Black people, to go after your health, do what you need to do to make sure that you are getting the health care that you need and deserve, and don't be afraid to reach out for support. If, if you're not feeling that good about your mental health as well, there are people and resources out there who are happy to support you as well as advocate for you, and Dr. Davis is a great example of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Davis. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. And I just want to say kudos to you for creating this kind of environment that's uh, helping people, informing people, and also encouraging us as well. So so thank you and, and, and good job by you as well. 
Thank you. That means a lot, Dr. Davis. I appreciate it. And before we end today, I'd like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you appreciate the show, drop a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For notes from the show, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. After you check out the show notes, head over to my gift shop and show yourself or someone special in your life some love with gifts of encouragement, hope, and positive affirmations. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.